Good afternoon, good morning, good evening to all of you joining us here in person and all of you joining us online. It's uh, my great pleasure to open up uh, today's policy seminar, uh, which is on the political economy of food system transformation, which looks at the what we all know are the increasing complexities involved in agri-food policy influencing and policy making. Our discussion today is centered around the recently published Oxford University Press and IFPRI uh, comprehensive and multidisciplinary book edited by Danielle Resnick and Jo Swinnen, both of whom are with us today. Um, and we are very fortunate to have several of the chapters of the book's chapters authors with us as well in this uh, seminar. Uh, we hope all of you will join us in this important discussion. Those of you in the room, there are mics uh, for you to ask questions. Um, and for those of you online, please do submit your questions. You can do so on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter, or should I say X. Um, so without further ado, um, it's my great pleasure now to uh, ask Danielle Resnick to join us uh, up here. She is going to speak to us sort of about the overview chapter, which she co-authored with Yo. And that chapter really looks at the complexities underlying food system transformation and political economy drivers of policy choices. Thank you, Danielle, very much for teeing up the key themes of this important book. Okay, well, thank you so much, Charlotte, uh, for the introduction, and thanks to all of you here in the room for joining us today, and to all of you online uh, for taking time out of your day. We're really excited to share this book with you. It's been about a two and a half year uh, undertaking, um, so really excited to share with you today. I will be providing just a high-level overview of some of the uh, common themes in the book, um, highlighting why we thought a political economy perspective was so important when we're thinking about food systems transformation. I'll talk a little bit about the analytical framework that we used in the book and how we situated many of the different chapters, um, and then some of the common lessons that we take away from the book. And then my co-panelists, they're going to delve into more of the details, talking about specific case studies and specific issues around nutrition and food policy. So of course, no um, uh, book is possible without a edited book. I don't think it's clicking there. Okay, there we go. Um, no edited book is really possible without uh, a great team of authors. And we were really fortunate to have almost two dozen global scholars participating in this book, using disparate uh, methodologies, coming at political economy from different disciplinary perspectives to give us much more nuance on this topic. Um, and so you can see on the screen, we, we touch on a variety of different thematic topics, um, including on repurposing subsidies. And we have uh, two of our authors, Will Martin and Rob Voss, who were involved uh, in that particular study with us here today. So let me talk briefly about why we think um, you know, it's so difficult these days to be getting reforms related to uh, the food system and why a political economy perspective can be useful. So first and foremost, we know that the food system's incredibly dynamic and complex. And we hear about this a lot these days, you know, how, how complex the food system is. But for those of us who work on political economy, it makes quite a big difference. Because traditionally, when we were looking at political economy of agricultural policy, we thought in quite simple 
simplistic terms. We thought about producers versus consumers. Producers want high prices, consumers want low prices. Today it's so complex, we have uh, insurance companies, banks. We even have mining conglomerates that are involved in producing fertilizer. So we have much more differentiation in terms of the number of interest groups and the types of coalitions that we need to be thinking about. We also know that it's a multi-sectoral challenge, and there's rarely any ministries of food systems. This leads to real struggles in terms of horizontal coordination within the public sector and some real trade-offs and policy prioritization. So you'll see on the screen here, here's two pictures from South Africa. Um, the top one is just after uh, 2018, when the health ministry was working with civil society to push forward uh, the health levy. And this is something Eduardo will talk about a little bit more. Um, and they worked to put this tax on sugar-sweetened beverage taxes, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages in order to reduce the incidence of non-communicable diseases. But just a few years later, the sugar industry um, wrote a report showing that this tax had really hurt job creation in the country, particularly hurting some of the most vulnerable, including uh, African women who work in the sector. And so this led the Ministry of Trade and Industry to then come up with a sugar master plan about how you protect uh, the sugar industry. So it gives a, a nice kind of concrete example of, of these, uh, these trade-offs that we need to kind of reconcile when we're talking about food systems. Secondly, food systems are no longer just about food anymore. They're no longer just about what we eat, the number of calories we consume, or even about production. They're embedded with a lot of other societal goals that we're interested in, um, whether it's about sovereignty, whether it's about gender equality, racial justice, or even human rights. Um, and so I like this picture on the bottom right-hand side, side in particular. It's coming from Kenya. Um, it's a group of peasant farmers that marched to Nairobi. They were against uh, genetically modified organisms. They were coming to protest about this and protesting for food sovereignty. But you can see from their T-shirts that they're also talking about being uh, peasant feminists. And the man in the middle actually has a shirt that says, End. SGBV, so that means end sexually based gender violence, right? So we've kind of used a food system lens to try to tackle a whole range of societal goals that we're interested in, and that's been amplified by the range of transnational movements um, that we see working with local civil society to push forward different types of frames um, and shifting our traditional thinking about how agricultural lobbying works. Now, just as our food systems have been shifting, our political systems have changed dramatically in the last decade and a half. Uh, we've seen a rise of populist movements, both uh, left and right wing, um, growing polarization, and partisan dealignment, um, particularly in a lot of European context where you see a declining congruence of conservative parties with farmers' interests and farmers finding different types of, of representation through different types of movements. And I think Yo will talk about that a little later. Um, with this, we've seen this rise in misinformation. And whenever you have populism, you also have a denigration of evidence-based policymaking. Um, and so we've seen this in terms of any types of discussions, particularly on, on the environmental front, um, but the, the challenge of trying to uh, push forward science-based evidence making when people often interpret that through their own ideological lenses and biases. And then lastly, just as we're having a lot of polarization uh, domestically, we know that we're having a real kind of crisis in multilateralism at the moment. Um, and we see a lot of consensus decisions much more fraught in multilateral bodies. Um, particularly, this is challenging for issues with cross-jurisdictional relevance, particularly issues around climate change. At the same time, we see the growth of a number of other types of intergovernmental bodies, um, particularly from um, you know, middle-tier countries um, and the creation of BRICS and G20. 
even expanding now to include the African Union. Um, and all these bodies having their own food system and food security commitment goals. And so we have a real kind of fragmentation in terms of what are we actually moving to as a global community. And at the same time, you have uh, the growth in what's called multi-stakeholderism. Um, and this was typified by the UN Food System Summit, where you, you bring together a lot of different uh, civil society actors um, to discuss what they want to see in the food system space. It's really important for participation and inclusion, but the trade-off is that you're not really obligating governments to do anything. And so it's a real challenge for getting movement and accountability in this space. So this is the context in which we're operating in when we're trying to transform our food systems to make them healthier for the planet, to make them healthier for human, uh, for human consumption, and also for livelihoods, particularly for the poor. So against this background, our book uh, presents this, this framework. It helps situate a lot of the, the case studies that are in the book. Um, and we talk about four different types of domains or spaces um, that are really pivotal to think about when you're trying to um, think about opportunities for pushing forward food system reforms. So on the upper left-hand side, you have what we call the incentive space. Um, this is where you have the traditional thinking about political economy. You think about the costs and benefits of different types of policy instruments. They're distributional implications and, of course, what that means for who are the winners and losers from this particular reform. And we added to this also salience, and this actually comes from Eduardo's work. You know, certain policy instruments are much more visible and resonate with the public than other types of instruments, and you can kind of calculate uh, what the implications will be for you. So taxes, for instance, we can think about what they may mean for our pocketbook. It's a little bit harder with regulatory policies where it can become a bit arcane to think through what does this mean for me personally. Um, how you interpret the costs and benefits, the distribution of these, um, can really depend on whether you're motivated more by material interests or more by values and ideas, right? So are you more kind of concerned about uh, nationalism versus globalism, um, nature versus technology, certain gains today versus uncertain risks tomorrow? And then, of course, how we filter through our interests and ideas um, can really be shaped by institutions that are out there, um, including farmers' institutions, industry lobbies, uh, even, even thinking through political institutions and global institutions. This really then shapes the type of uh, power and agency. Who has power and agency to either push reforms forward or to, to stymie them, to try to block them? And that's where we get to our mobilizational space up on the right-hand side. Here in this mobilizational space, across the book, there's three key things that consistently come across. The importance of coalitions, and you'll hear about that a lot today, um, how important those are for pushing forward reforms. How coalitions use information, how they might uh, mobilize you know, the research that IFPRI um, does, but how they may uh, also you know, twist that information in different ways. How they may frame the information to support uh, what the coalition wants to, wants to put forward. And then tactics. Um, tactics are really key. You can use more confrontational tactics. You can be using protests. Um, you can have more conciliatory pr uh, processes, uh, citizens' assemblies, stakeholder platforms, urban food policy councils. Um, and then you can have these behind-the-scenes uh, negotiations um, that sometimes you have between business and the state. Those types of tactics really define how contentious or how consensual um, the policy issue becomes. Um, and that kind of leads us to our, our dimension on the bottom uh, right-hand side when thinking about, about how can you 
uh, come up with the best designs given how contentious or consensual the particular issue is. Um, so we're going to have today some really interesting work by Chris Barrett where he talks about bundling, how you can be bundling across different sectors to maybe get the broadest win set, the broadest coalition to push forward a reform. We have some interesting work in the book on policy packaging, um, particularly a chapter looking at reducing red meat and processed uh, meat consumption and how you can package different instruments, your regulatory, your tax, your behavioral change instruments to try to, to convince um, the public to, to reduce meat consumption. And then sequencing, how do you deal with intertemporal trade-offs with policy reforms so that if you do, you know, you do one thing first, you, you buy public trust and you can get momentum to do uh, the subsequent reforms that you need to do. Now, bundling packaging and sequencing, they can also, though, generate path dependencies. Um, you have different, you know, coalitions get, get stuck in, um, and you really need to get them all on board if you're going to make uh, a change in the future. We know, nonetheless, that we do have dynamism and adaptation in the food system. And so we look at what, what drives that adaptation, and that's in the final box there. Um, one is critical junctures. You know, any of the junctures we've had in the past few years, whether it's COVID, whether it's uh, the war in Ukraine, but it can be a fiscal crisis that may be motivated sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. taxes. It can be the rise of green movements. Um, we've seen a number of countries where you've seen green parties um, get greater attention and help move the environmental discourse forward. Diffusion. This is where you have uh, you know, policy transfer um, driven by epistemic communities, driven by um, different policymakers. So an example in one context gets kind of translated into other contexts. And then cascades are very similar to that, but they're coming from on high. They're coming from maybe a, a, super, a supranational body or a regional body like the African Union's CADAP program, uh, the European Union's Farm to Fork strategy, or even the UN Food System Summit's National Food System Pathways. So just to conclude, um, some common lessons coming out of the book. Um, you know, one is that the ability to reconcile trade-offs across, uh, across groups really depends on when the, whether the conflict is really among interests or it's really among values and ideas. And I think this is something that Kern's going to go into in just a moment. So it's very easy to buy off your opponents if they're really motivated about what's this going to do to my pocketbook or to my profit. But it's much harder to, to do that when the conflict is really about you know, deep-seated values and ideas. Coalitions, as I said, is going to be a common theme today. Um, they are absolutely essential for any types of reforms. They can fracture, they can calcify, and they can transform in unexpected ways, especially when you have what we call strange bedfellow coalitions uh, come together. Chris, I think he, he's going to show quite clearly that divergent preferences um, can really be reconciled through strategic policy design and savvy framing to try to get the broadest set of stakeholders on board. Uh, fourth, I think something we sometimes forget is the importance of marrying policy instruments with uh, administrative and institutional capacities on the ground um, and really avoiding isomorphic mimicry. And so this is where some of our policy diffusion sometimes goes wrong because we say this worked great in this case, uh, it will work great in this other setting, um, but it, it may not take into account the institutional setting. And so we have some great work in the book um, by the Africa Center for Cities. They talk about urban food policy councils, how they didn't, they don't, they're not really working in the same way um, in Africa as they have in other parts of the global north. 
Finally, I think one of the, the key takeaways of the book is to not really ascribe um, normative goals to stakeholder categories. So trying to get away from what I call the food superheroes and villains dichotomies that we sometimes have out there, where we see all civil society is good, all corporate food industry is bad. Um, those types of dichotomies, I think, really impede progress on trying to get forward food system transformation. So I'm going to stop there and hand back to Charlotte. Thanks, Danielle, for teeing things up so well. And I actually love the choice of the photos. Sometimes a photo actually speaks a thousand words, right? So, so those are those are great choices. Um, it actually leads very well into our next presentation, and our next speaker is joining us remotely. It's uh, Kuhn Dekonik from the uh, he's the economist with the Trade and Agricultural Directorate at the OECD, and. All the full bios of our very distinguished speakers are available online, so I'm just giving you names and titles. Kuhn is the uh, author of the second chapter in this book, and it's a really interesting look at the facts, interests, and values, and how these interact to shape the political economy around um, food systems transformation. Kuhn, thanks for being with us. The floor is yours. Thank you, Charlotte. Basically, all political problems boil down to disagreements over facts, interests, or values, alone or in combination. Or maybe I'm slightly exaggerating there, but surely it's a large proportion of the political problems that are driven by those, by those factors. Uh, about two years ago, when we were writing our OECD report, Making Better Policies for Food Systems, we were puzzling about why is it often so hard to achieve better policies? And pretty soon when you start to think about the political economy of food system transformation, as Danielle already mentioned, it gets very complicated. And so we were looking for a simple lens to help us understand those things in, in, a, in an easy parsimonious way. And so we settled on facts, interests, and values. And it's true that for food systems, that those three matter a lot. A lot of the difficulties can be explained by those three. So if you start with the facts, there's a lot we know about food systems, but there's also a lot we don't know. In fact, there are really significant evidence gaps in many areas about the extent of some problems, about their causes, and often especially about the types of policies that would be necessary or would be effective to address those things. So that's one type of facts-related problem is when we just don't have the facts. There's another type of problem, which is what happens when public perception diverges from where the science is, and that you see in several food systems issues as well. Uh, so the bottom line there is on the facts dimension, what we need is a shared understanding of the facts. Now, facts can tell us how the world is. Uh, it doesn't tell us how the world should be. So that's where interests and values come into play. And interests are, of course, really important. The moment you start to play with policies, the moment you start to tinker something, uh, tinker with the policy, it will always create winners and losers. And nobody wants to be the loser, of course. So everybody will try to bargain and try to influence the policy process to pull it in their preferred direction. And by itself, that is actually not necessarily a bad thing. It can actually be really helpful for governments to find out how a proposed policy might affect different stakeholders. Where things go wrong is when certain groups have more access to that process than others, and especially when there are some groups who are completely excluded from that policy process. Uh, think, for example, about future generations or also, especially in the past, indigenous peoples and so on. Now, there's different ways that you can deal with that issue. An important, uh, important set of issues is around how you can create a more level playing field. 
but that is often not really sufficient. And sometimes you do need those coalitions that Danielle mentioned uh, to manage to overcome the status quo. Um, facts and interests are the topics that people talk about a lot when it comes to political economy. And we feel that this third component values is, is a very important one and is one that is not studied nearly enough. And if you think about it, many food systems issues have a strong values component to it. Think, for example, about the, the disagreements around genetically modified organisms. We just saw the picture in Danielle's presentation there. Um, ostensibly, that's a discussion around the costs and benefits and potential risks of a new technology. And in reality, there's so much more happening than that. For example, some people might not like it because they don't trust large corporations like Monsanto. Other people might not like the idea of, of something that sounds to them like a technological fix for what is actually, in their view, a social problem. And then there's other people who don't like the idea of manipulating genetics, of playing God with DNA. So even on the side of the proponents, you might have people who are strongly in favor of GMOs because they believe in the power of technology per se, the, the power of science and progress. So these values dimensions are very often uh, at play when, when there's a, a, food systems, uh, a food systems disagreement. And it's really important that we clarify those and bring them to the surface, because if we don't uh, talk about them openly, then they just remain hidden and it becomes really difficult to understand why we're even disagreeing in the first place. Um, and values sounds like a soft one, and maybe that's one of the reasons why people haven't really discussed it that much. It sounds like a soft element, but in reality, it's the hardest one of the three. Uh, if there's an issue around facts, in theory, you can do more research. If there's an issue around interests, slightly harder, but you could, in theory, open your pocketbook and pay compensation. If it's a material interests uh, issue, then in theory, you can do that. Of course, those approaches don't work at all with values. So if you have a strong disagreement over values, what do you do as a policymaker? And there's basically two ways. One is that you try and find a creative solution that somehow pleases people with very different values. Sometimes that is possible. So if you can do that, then clearly that is ideal. Uh, that's unfortunately not always possible. Sometimes society just has to make a tough decision. And we've seen in many countries that people have started to use deliberative processes like citizens' assemblies uh, to bring together, for example, 100 citizens chosen to be a representative of society. And they would then discuss over a number of days with each other and with experts the different issues, and then would, they would recommend then a certain path forward. And several societies have used that to cut through some very thorny issues. So that actually does appear to be one technique that you can use. Success is never guaranteed, of course, but that does seem to uh, hold a lot of promise. Now, I spoke here about facts, interests, and values as if, as if they are neatly separated from each other. That's not really the case, of course. In reality, there are spillover effects between those three as well. So what you see is that, for example, interest groups might deliberately spread misinformation. So a conflict over interests can spill over into disagreements over facts. They might also try to stoke a value conflict. Uh, and you might also have situations where people have very strong feelings about an issue because of interests and values and therefore are no longer open to really taking a hard look at the evidence. And it can even go the other way where if there is uncertainty over the facts that in turn might exacerbate your, your conflicts, your disagreements over interests and values. So if that happens, if you get a situation where everything starts to uh, spill over into everything else that you could describe as a policy controversy when you have like a cluster of facts, interests and values and different clusters that are mutually exclusive. Uh, the bad news is it's really, really difficult to solve such a policy controversy. 
uh, it's very difficult once it has happened to then sort of uh, untie all these problems and, and, and go back and, and solve these issues. Because as long as you have agreement on one of the three dimensions, at least you have some common ground. But if all three of them are under discussion, then it's very difficult to find any common ground. Uh, but we shouldn't lose all hope, however, because it does turn out that there's a lot of best practices separately for facts, interests and values. For example, for facts, uh, there are best practices around using regulatory impact assessments, using scientific advice, using stakeholder consultation processes and also using them together so that you get the evidence in front of the stakeholders and they can question the evidence and so on. So there are best practices to help get this shared understanding of the facts. And when it comes to interests, there are best practices in terms of rules and legislation to have transparency, to reduce the role of lobbying, etc. And also when it comes to values, as I mentioned, there are some tools that you can use. And the important thing there is that success is never really guaranteed, but to the extent that you are using those best practices and that you are incorporating them in your policy process, you might actually reduce the risk of major policy controversies uh, emerging in the first place. So to the extent that you are incorporating those best practices in your policy process, you might prevent major disagreements on facts, interests and values. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Kuhn. Really interesting uh, discussion of facts, interests and values. We're now going to sort of look at a more specific uh, set of issues, and uh, our next speaker is Eduardo Gomez. He's a professor and director of the Institute of Health Policy and Politics at Lehigh University. He authored another chapter in this book, which looks at how Mexico, India, and South Africa have responded on the policy front to a very sharp rise in non-communicable diseases linked to or potentially linked to the consumption of unhealthy food. And given the, the topic of ultra-processed foods is so important, there's actually a second chapter in the book also dealing with, uh, with ultra-processed foods. So I just want to point that out to you. There's a chapter on ultra-processed food environments, which includes a case study on Ghana. And I think to put this uh, topic into perspective, uh, we know that ultra-processed foods do play some role in the rise of non-communicable diseases. And today, globally, it's estimated that about 40% of the global population is considered obese or overweight. So I think that explains the, the focus on these two, two chapters. So Eduardo, thank you for, for being with us and the floor is yours. Great. Well, thank you very much, Charlotte, and thank you, Danielle, and uh, the Institute for organizing this, and thank you, everyone, for taking the time uh, to uh, come to our uh, presentation of the chapters. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Ed, Ed Gomez, and the chapter, uh, the title of my chapter in this book is called Government Responses to Ultra-Processed and Sugary Beverage Industries, Building Coalitions Across Policy Sectors. And I'm a political scientist by training, so I look at, the, at this issue from a political science perspective, emphasizing institutions, interests, ideas. Uh, most of my work in the past has been in Brazil, but I've looked at the BRICS and emerging economies. So I was very excited to write this chapter comparing Mexico, uh, India, and South Africa, three emerging economies that are dealing with these non-communicable disease situation, obesity, type 2 diabetes epidemic, and how governments are responding through a variety of pol policy instruments, from taxation to advertising and sales regulations. 
And so I start off by looking at how successful these emerging economies and other low and middle income countries have been in introducing fiscal innovations and taxes in response uh, to this uh, non-communicable disease situation. As many of you know, the Limic nations lead the, the world in introducing taxation efforts uh, in response to sugary sweetened beverages and ultra-processed foods. And it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to compare to the U.S. Most of these innovations in these countries are at the national level, and the U.S. has not been able to achieve this at the national and very limited local level. Um, I have a, a, a research question that I start off with in this uh, book, and let's, let's see if this is working. <laughs> there it is. All right. And the question is, in contrast to the U.S., the emerging economies of Mexico, India, and South Africa introduced national soda taxes and other public health awareness campaigns in response to non-communicable diseases. Though impressive, these emerging economies did not introduce effective marketing, sales, and food labeling regulations for some time, and some haven't still. Um, and so I have a question in this in chapter, and that is, why were these governments unwilling to be equally as committed to all public health uh, and regulatory policies? Why focus primarily on the soda tax? And this is important because these countries did introduce national uh, legislation and policies on nutrition awareness, improved nutrition awareness, exercise uh, um, campaigns, but, uh, but they emphasized the taxes as opposed to really emphasizing sales and marketing regulations and food labeling regulations. So that's sort of the puzzle that I look at uh, in this chapter. The I argue uh, the answer to this question, we need to address the complex international domestic politics of non-communicable disease policy agenda setting across policy sectors. So for those of you that have been doing research on this, we all know that we have a tendency to focus in on one policy sector, and oftentimes that's due to research limitations or time limitations. But what I'm hoping in this chapter is to encourage us to do more research across policy sectors and to look at the agenda setting process for each of these sectors compared to one another. But why did Mexico, India, and South Africa prioritize taxation over these other regulatory policies? I argue that when compared to regulatory policies, the international, organizational, and philanthropic and civil societal attention and support for soda tax and snack food taxes emerged at a much earlier point in time compared to uh, regulations. The tax immediate threat to industry also generated more media visibility and debate among politicians and the public, which was not the case for regulatory policies. The tax also provided potential government revenue, which was not true for, or as, uh, for marketing sales and other regula regulations. So I take an analytical approach uh, to explaining this, and I think that um, you know I, I've always been in, in favor of taking analytical approaches from public policy and political science and using them to explain complex situations. And in this chapter, I took a multiple streams approach, uh, which is an, an analytical framework that focuses on the agenda setting process. That is, why are some policies prioritized over others? And this was first introduced by John Kingdom in 1984. Subsequent scholars, uh, Sabatier, for example, had a wonderful uh, edited volume on this and other topics. Um, and I applied this framework to the cases of Mexico, India, and South Africa. 
the multiple, multiple streams focuses on three independent streams of, 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 of issues. The problem stream, the politics stream, and the policy stream. The problem stream being a particular crisis, a health crisis, for example, obesity, type 2 diabetes. The politics stream being a change in government or the national mood in favor of certain policies. And the policy stream being the policy solutions, how are governments going to respond. This framework then uh, emphasizes the role of the policy entrepreneur. And the policy entrepreneur can be an individual or it can be a group of individuals that in response to a window of opportunity, a crisis, try to build a coalition in support of a prioritizing certain policies over others. And so this framework I use to sort of explain why we saw uh, taxation being so prioritized in these three countries, but not the other, other regulatory sectors. So I apply this approach to Mexico, India, and South Africa. All three countries encountered the problem of non-communicable diseases, obesity, type 2 diabetes, especially among children and adolescents. I think these countries seeing a vast increase in these, in these health threats among younger populations. Uh, each of these saw changes in government uh, to certain new administrations with new ideas. And also, all three had soda tax as a solution to responding to them. In response to the crisis or wind of opportunity, a president and senator in Mexico, as well as civil societal international supporters in India and South Africa, which were the policy entrepreneurs, helped to build consensus and prioritize taxation. But this did not occur for regulations. However, I also emphasize that the multiple streams uh, analysis does have some limitations and that it does not address the importance of international policy community. And we all know the WHO and many international agencies are starting to prioritize these policy instruments. But also the important role of philanthropists, for example, the Bloomberg Foundation that funded a lot of the critical activist movements uh, for a taxation approach, such as in the case of Mexico. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through briefly what I found in the three case studies, and I'll conclude with some major lessons. And I start off with the case of Mexico, uh, where the sugary sweetened beverages tax became a priority under President Peña Nieto, Ernesto Peña Nieto of the pre-political party from 2012 to 2018. Um, and here we really saw the importance of civil societal activists, uh, several NGOs that were funded from the Bloomberg Foundation that did a great job of raising attention to the issue and funding a lot of media campaigns uh, in the TV and in the news about the importance of the soda tax and how that could lead to a dec decrease in consumption of sugary beverages. PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization, was also very much involved in trying to raise awareness and attention to the, uh, the adoption of this tax. But the tax was also supported by the pre-political party as well as an influential senator, uh, Marcelo Torres Pembiert from the National Action Party, who introduced the idea um, in 2012 within the Congress. And importantly, she was from the PAN, the, uh, the PAN party, which has historically been more pro-business. So it was really important for someone in a pro-business political party alliance sect, uh, uh, party to su publicly support and work with the PRI on adopting this tax. The economic situation also benefited from, benefited from a tax. Uh, Mexico was in a recession at the time, and in fact, the president used this, introduced the tax as a way to improve the economy, raise revenue, and at the same time address health issues. And the tax was eventually adopted in 2013, and again was the first national tax globally uh, to be adopted. 
And in fact, uh, in the chapter, I talk about how uh, Pajo praised Mexico for leading the world in adopting this national level soda tax. However, when it came to regulations, um, Mexico was not as successful, particularly in the area of advertising and sales restrictions of unhealthy foods. In 2014, the National Strategy for Prevention and Control of Overweight, Obesity, and Diabetes was introduced, and here Mexico introduced some um, restrictions on TV advertising, uh, certain hours uh, for these foods towards children. But a lot of research uh, subsequently showed that these regulations weren't ad being adhered to. There was also a, a limitation or regulation on not selling these products in schools, and subsequent research has found that these products are still being sold in schools. So there is a policy enforcement issue that's very difficult to address in a highly decentralized context, and that even the case in the U.S., as well as South Africa and India. But why did this happen? Well, there was less international attention and support for the regulations compared to the soda tax less media attention and government discussion, less of an immediate threat to industry. The regulations on marketing and sales did not immediately threaten the wallet and the, the jobs loss, potentially, of the, uh, of the business sector. So there was less resistance and less visibility because of that. The tax was much easier to enforce compared to a regulation at the subnational level, and the activist regulatory coalition, coalition for tax appeared to emerge much earlier in time compared to the regulatory sector. And India joined Mexico and South Africa in seeing a burgeoning growth of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm running out of time. Um, and so in, this, in these chapters, I sort of explain the same process and how um, the, the differences or the, the similarities through all of them and sort of explaining the differences in the timing and influence of the international community and civil society and, um, and also the, uh, the, uh, the differences in government attention uh, due to this. So I'm just going to go uh, briefly to the conclusion here. I'm very sorry about that. I'm very short on time. Uh, in conclusion, uh, Mexico, India, and South Africa were early innovators with respect to taxation on SSB beverages and ultra-processed foods, but this was not the case for marketing and sales regulations. The international domestic political economy context was very different when it came to taxation versus regulation. Taxes benefited earlier from early international suicide report, uh, posed credible threats to industry, and thus generating more media and political attention compared to regulations. But what was very interesting was that vehement industry opposition to the tax generated greater political attention and government resolve to implement the policy. And this suggests that government's maybe uh, reputation was important as governments did not want to be perceived as weak and in caving into uh, industry pressures. The multiple streams analysis was used as a framework, and I found it very helpful to explain sort of the differences in policy reform. And while the global and domestic coalition for regulatory reform has been late to emerge, the political economy context may be soon changing as more activists and more research become aware of the importance of enforcing regulations. Going forward, I argue that we need more research on the different international, domestic, political economy, contexts, interests, and incentives between non-communicable disease policies to, be, uh, to better understand why nations are not making as much progress in tackling these diseases. All right, well, thank you so much, everyone, and I look forward to your comments. Thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs>
Thank you very much, Ed. Maybe we can already plant a question for you for later. We, I think we'll all be interested to know whether the taxes actually had an impact on consumption of, uh, of uh, uh, sweetened beverages. Um, our next speaker is also joining us online. Um, Christopher Barrett is the Stephen B. and Janice G. Ashley Professor of Applied Economics and Management an international professor of agriculture at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. And Chris authored uh, yet another chapter in this book, um, which basically says, we all know sound science and evidence are crucial to arrive at promising technological or institutional innovations, but they're not enough. Uh, they require something else to, to actually uh, reach their intended purpose and, and scale. So. The floor is yours, Chris. Thank you very much for talking us through the socioeconomic bundles. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for the invitation. And thank you to Danielle and Yo for the invitation. And congratulations to them and the other authors of chapters in this really exciting book. It's a pleasure to get to, to speak with you. I'm sorry I can't be there in person. Next slide, please. So I'm going to talk through work on socio-technical innovation bundles. Some of you may be aware that a, a group of us, an expert panel convened by Nature Sustainability, produced a, a book on socio-technical innovation bundles in agri-food systems transformation. And one of the absolutely central conclusions of that book was that the real obstacle to agri-food system transformation isn't the supply of exciting scientific or engineering innovations. As Charlotte just said, that's a necessary condition, but it's far from a sufficient condition. Indeed, that expert panel concluded that the real barrier to transformation lies in the political economy of diffusing those innovations and scaling them in context-appropriate combinations. And so that really underscores the, the central thesis of this book, and that is that Political economy issues are at the heart of the challenge of transforming agri-food systems for whatever purpose one might want. And indeed, the multiplicity of purposes is part of the reason why we need bundles of social and technological innovations together. Single-shot innovations, single policies, single new plant varieties, single new machinery and processing, none of those magic bullet solutions winds up having any really big impact at scale, in part because different constituencies are looking for different things. Some people are looking for healthier food, other for more sustainably produced food, other for more equitable uh, division of the consumer and producer surplus in food systems. And the multiple objectives and the heterogeneous preferences different actors in societies have around the food system require some compromise. And that compromise can often be best achieved through bundling of different innovations. Equally important to that is the recognition that there are no innovations out there that any of us have been able to identify that generate only winners. There are no pure Pareto gains out there. That innovation necessarily entails what the economist Joseph Schumpeter famously termed creative destruction. Even though you might get, generate rather large net gains for society, there will be some losers. The, the paper in Lancet Planetary Health, uh, the head from which appears on the slide, goes through a number of cases of different innovations in food systems to trace out their impacts on the various SDGs 
And the punchline of that paper, which was part of the Nature Sustainability Expert Panel, was that one can't identify innovations that don't have some adverse effect in expectation on at least one SDG. So people who are dead set on that one SDG that you're going to hurt with your innovation, uh, that is their priority. They will always try to block progress using that innovation unless you can come up with some way to compensate them, some way to bundle that innovation with something that attends to their needs. And this is especially acute because we know from psychology that people are much more sensitive to headwinds than tailwinds, much more sensitive to perspective losses than to perspective gains. Next slide, please. So if people are, are very attuned to perspective losses, but innovations generate net gains, the solution comes from longstanding welfare economics. Back in 1939, Nicholas Calder and John Hicks independently published two very famous papers about potential Pareto improvements. And together, independently, they came up with what has come to be known as the Calder-Hicks compensation criterion. And the basic idea of that is that there are potential Pareto improvements. That is, some people will be made worse off if you implement this change. Think of trade policy. But you could take the gains to some of the winners and use some portion of those gains to fully compensate the losers so that you could turn this innovation into a Pareto improvement. And that's usually thought of in terms of compensatory payments, like direct cash payments. But the basic thesis of this chapter is that we can think about the compensation criterion as applying to combinations of innovations. That if we bundle innovations that attend to different needs, such that we don't wind up making any of the SDGs, for example, uh, harder to achieve, we at least hold even on some in advance towards fulfilling other SDGs, together those bundles can enable us to make progress in agri-food systems transformation. And by providing combinations that each attract different coalitions, you can build a large enough coalition to support positive change, the sorts of change we need. But a crucial thing here is a central thesis of institutional economics from Douglas North and others is that if you want to build coalitions and you want collective action, you need sound institutions, meaning rules of the game that people understand and hold true to. And two of the most fundamental challenges to rules-based coalition building are one, concentrated power. And one of the challenges we see around the world in agri-food systems is the rise of concentrated power, both upstream and downstream in commercial agri-food value chains that pose very serious challenges to the ability to make people bond together, to, to form a, a coalition to act together. Because those with power can, can act unilaterally with relative impunity. They can impose their will on others and therefore they can impose innovations that might harm others and not have to compromise. The second big challenge to rules-based coalition building, you know, a central rule of sound institutions is you need accurate information. 
misinformation is a problem. And as we all know, misinformation has become kind of a fundamental tactic, if not the fundamental strategy in some cases of many political movements. And so by combating misinformation and concentrated power, we can help to advance the potential to form coalitions to advance multiple innovations bundled together. Moreover, the bundling can be self-reinforcing in that the bundling of innovations and the process of co-creation of locally appropriate bundles of innovations builds trust in one another. As people act together, it can help to make it easier to, to rebuild the coalition to achieve the next bundle of innovations needed for the next advance. So the chapter goes in at some length in explaining kind of the theory of these things, but I'd like to turn, next slide please, to three different case studies that the paper then goes through. The first, and in my perception of the world, one of the best current examples of this sort of socio-technical innovation bundling is this massive program that China launched called the Science and Technology Backyards. For those who are not familiar with it, I encourage you to go to the website that's listed on the slide, look at any of several articles, including the three I highlighted here. But the, the key parts of this program, it started in 2009, as China was experiencing this mass exodus of rural populations towards urban areas, farmers were struggling to find workers, they needed to start mechanizing, input suppliers were looking for new markets, and Chinese scholars, this was a time when Chinese universities were rapidly trying to advance to the global frontier and then extend the frontier. They each had their own objectives in agri-food systems innovation in China, which is a massive and quite heterogeneous uh, agricultural landscape. So they each had different interests and cleverly, a, a group of leaders, many of them based at China Agricultural University, recognized that together they could make common cause. And so they, they launched with government support, sort of thing that's relatively easier to implement in a one-party state like China. They generated this large-scale participatory research and extension program that brought together the, the commercial input suppliers, academic and non-academic researchers, farmer groups, local governments, and together in each of the sites, and there are now about 140, I have 127 here at the time of writing, but there are a number more created since then. In each of these roughly 140 localities, they would come up with the bundles needed to advance agricultural productivity in those spaces to solve the problems local farmers were facing to create new profitable markets for both input suppliers and output traders and to generate good science that the, the researchers would be excited to publish. So they, they formed these, these communities of practice that were all built around developing locally contextualized bundles of innovation, particular to the crops and the climate and the pest and pathogen pressures and the various structural constraints faced in those, amp in those locations. So this is, I think, one of the nicer examples of localized co-creation in which the various different constituencies, each with different objectives, came together, not just to, to come up with the right bundles of innovation for the context, but in the process, they, they built trust with one another and with government, and they solved quite a few problems and helped accelerate Chinese agricultural productivity growth. Next slide, please. The second example is 
going to, to rice genetics. If one thinks about the, the green revolution, in many ways, the, the poster child of the green revolution is the semi-dwarf varieties of rice, beginning with IR8, and then more recently, the, the IR64 variety that became the most widely diffused rice variety in the world. And many of us are aware of the story of, of the breeding that generated these semi-dwarf varieties that dramatically boost yields and sharply reduce hunger in rice growing areas of Asia. What is often unrecognized is how important it was to build the coalitions to support the feasibility of widespread diffusion of those improved varieties of rice. There was a good deal of opposition to those new rice varieties early on. But because one, they were publicly released, so you didn't have a monopoly power holding patent over the varieties, you could have the breeders were prepared to negotiate quite readily with people who are managing irrigation, with the folks who are handling the rural road system, with the government that was managing trade and price policy. And together they could bundle policies and new agricultural innovations that jointly wound up lending the, the support to a rapid, historically unprecedented diffusion of new varieties that dramatically boosted rice productivity and helped accelerate economic development throughout the rice growing areas of much of Asia. Contrast that with the more recent golden rice saga. And I say saga because in the year 2000, 23 years ago, Time Magazine's cover was devoted to this discovery which people thought was going to be this absolute magic bullet solving vitamin A deficiency through a quite remarkable scientific uh, advance in transgenic engineering of rice so that it would make pro-vitamin A available uh, to rice consumers. The problem was it was a magic bullet and it lacked the supporting infrastructure of other coalitions trying to work with them to get golden rice out, diffusing, supported by, by other innovations in both institutions and milling technology, et cetera. And that combined with very strong environmental opposition and problems of intellectual property patent thickets, it led to this huge slowdown such that golden rice was only commercially released in the Philippines, the first developing country last year. So it was more than 20 years from discovery of this breakthrough that made the cover of time until the first farmers were cultivating this commercially. So the science didn't drive diffusion and scaling and impact. It was the political economy of building the coalitions to create the full supported uh, socio-technical innovation bundles that enabled the huge impact of the Green Revolution. And, and the sorry, final sorry, example, Chris, we're, we're going to have to wrap up here. So maybe just uh, wrap up on this the, example. Let me skip the final example. So <laughs> the final example deals with BT Brinjal in South Asia. You can read about it in the chapter. So thank you and apologies for taking too much time. Thank you very much, Chris. All right, now we get to our Director General here at IFPRI and the Managing Director of the CGIR Systems Transformation Science Group, uh, Johan Swinnen, who, as all of you know, is, is the co-editor of this book, and he's also the co-author of this chapter that he's going to speak about, also co-authored with Danielle. Um, and it speaks about coalitions. We've already heard quite a bit about coalitions. They can be helpful in driving policy, but they can also be helpful in maybe diverting good policy outcomes. So uh, we look forward to your comments, Yo. The floor is yours. 
Wow, big room. I mean, we started a few people, and then Danielle started speaking, and the whole room uh, filled up. Actually, before, I don't have too many minutes here, but I just want to spend <coughs> one minute just thanking my co-editor, co Danielle. I mean, she's done, this would have never uh, been materialized without her. She had to put up with a lot of things, including my agenda for two and a half years. And so the, her energy, her work, but also her patience with me were really crucial. It's been also an interesting journey in terms of uh, our coalition because we were essentially, she's a, a political scientist, I'm an economist, and so there's uh, several other contributions in the book which are written by people from other social science and um, psychology, etc. So it's been very interesting, I think, also for myself even to learn to speak the same language when we were going through the book and bringing all this together. And the final point there is that for me, this is really, it's the end, but also the beginning. So I think in the process of doing this, we got a lot of uh, interaction with other people who are working in the political economy field or asking very important questions, work that's going on. And I tried to bring some things in, and at some point, Danielle said, we have to finish the show, we can't <laughs> keep going on. And so um, this is at the same time, for me at least, uh, the start of uh, 2.0, if you want, into the future. I'm not sure if Danielle wants to put up with me anymore, but at least it's a, it's a project, a future project, which is on our minds. Um, <clears throat> actually, the third example of Chris, which he didn't talk about, is a very interesting one, okay? And so I really do encourage you to, to read it and to react to it because it's, it has a lot of very important, I think, very practical implications as well. All right, let me, um, can you next slide, please? I'm gonna start, I'm just gonna have a few brief remarks, okay? I think everybody stayed very well on time, so I wanna try this, the same thing. I think Danielle gave a very nice overview of the big uh, issues of the book and the conceptual framework that we have developed. Um, my, I wanted to put up this slide, okay? Because what we're facing is a huge challenge that the world is facing, okay? And can we actually make such large changes in the world, policy changes in the world, etc.? And so this slide actually change, uh, represents, summarizes a massive change in agricultural policy that was accomplished over the last 50 years, really. If we go back to the 1970s and the 1980s, so they see this on the left, uh, right-hand side, is summarizing the distortions in markets, in food markets, agricultural markets, than were then existed then. And we had massive taxation of farming in developing countries, massive subsidization with very distortive instruments in rich countries. And what has happened over the last uh, 50 years is that this has been brought down. So this is a really massive global change in agriculture and food policy. We still have a lot of subsidies in the world, but they are given in much less distortive ways on average than it used to be. And uh, at the same time, we have really reduced the taxation of agricultural policy in developing countries, which has had massive benefits for farmers and food security. So the question is, can we repeat this or can we do the same thing in this much broader process of food transformation, food system transformation, where, which uh, Danielle and others have, have referred to and with the more different challenges in terms of environmental objectives, uh, sustainability, um, uh, resilience, etc. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to tell you two stories, I think, on the role, why it's important to look at this, um, this uh, coalition issue and link this to value chains, if you want, in the, in the vertical way, and across, of course, the different value chains, if you think about bringing in these different objectives of, of environmental objectives, next to the economic objectives, etc. 
Um, this is a very simple um, illustration of a value chain. And so we are using typically economists, uh, even more than other disciplines, like to talk about consumers and producers, and often taxpayers as well if there's subsidies involved, right? But who are the producers and who are the consumers in this policy world? Well, it turns out that very few uh, households actually buy product, buy food from farmers, okay? And very few farmers sell their products to uh, households. So there's a lot of people involved in this value chain. And so you have, for example, a very simplified version where you have the food process traders, retailers, etc., playing a role, input suppliers on the other hand. And, um, and Chris Barrett's work, for example, he's done some really interesting work. We know that in rich countries, this consumer, uh, basically farmers only get 5 to 10% from what consumers spend on food. So 90%, 95% goes to these other agents in the value chain. If you, the recent work that Chris has done with the whole team showed that even in low and middle income countries, only 30 to 40% goes to the farms. And even there, 60 to 70% goes to these other agents. And they play a very important role, not just in the economic terms, but also in the political economy and, and the political decision making. Where they are actually in the debate really is, uh, depends a bit. For example, think about the sugar tax, okay? A sugar tax, the tax on sugar, is not on the sugar beet or on the sugar cane, it's on the processed sugar. So that means that the early, the first stage processes of, of sugar beet or sugar cane are on the side of the farmers typically in these things, okay? While secondary processes like food processing companies, retailers, they will be on the other side of it. Okay, so the whole idea of having small farmers versus big industries or big industries versus uh, small consumers is much more in reality in a lot of these policy debates, it's much more complicated than that. And I'll give you two uh, concrete examples. Next slide, please. So the first one is there was, um, as Europe has uh, liberalized its, its subsidy system or basically made it much less distortive, in the past 20 years, so now we are in a much more liberal environment. At the same time, food standards have increased tremendously over the past 20 years. And so that makes the relationship between the farmers, the food processors, and the retailers much more, uh, it's based much more on market transactions, not so much on, on farm regulated uh, transactions. And so the issue of how these transactions are taking place is really important. And so there's a lot of complaints by farmers that the big companies to which they sell are really not playing fair. Okay, so that's the re reference to the unfair trading practices. They will, if they don't want to buy it, they will basically tell the product is not up to standards, not up to quality, etc. So farmers have been lobbying governments all over Europe and then later also at the EU level to regulate this thing, to basically force the, uh, the buyers to play according to certain rules. And what's happened there is that initially there was a lot of opposition by the retailers, by the process against these new regulations. And so it looked like the outcome of the lobby game would be that there would be very low regulatory process. It ended up it's in, in much higher, more stricter regulations when the food process actually changed sides in the lobbying game. And that was when they first looked at themselves and said, well, 80% of food companies in Europe are small and medium enterprises. We are suffering from the same thing as the farmers in dealing with these large re uh, retailers. And so that really changed the outcome in the discussion. I'm gonna give you another example. This is from a story in the Washington Post from 2019. I thought it was a great story because it captures some of these things. So this is veggie burgers were living an idyllic little existence and then they got caught in a war over the future of meat. Next slide, please. 
And so it is about whether you can call plant-based products, whether you can call them burger or hot dog or meat in general. And so it turns out there is a, at that point, the, re the story referred to a big discussion on this thing. And so what you have is not on the one hand the processors and on, sorry, the, the, the consumers who like uh, vegan or vegetarian products and then the big companies and the cattle associations on the other side. But it turned out that a lot of the big companies are actually on both sides of the argument. Okay, that's the key story here. For example, the top veggie brands were actually owned by Kellogg, Kraft Heinz, major meat processors were leaning back because they were making money on both sides of the, uh, of the argument. And then of course you had the, the alternative uh, meat pro, uh, producers like Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, etc. And they were, I mean, these are big businesses now. Next slide, please. We just, uh, if you look at the alternative uh, meat market, that's how we refer to it, so it is both uh, plant-based meat producers and uh, lab meat producers. You see, these are all large companies which are dominating the thing there. And so this brings us back, when we think about these lobby games, these coalitions, it's a much more complex world out there than it is often uh, portrayed. Next slide. So this just summarizes where we are now. In some companies, in some uh, states, there has been a decision on this to actually prohibit uh, this term, but that almost everywhere it has been challenged by a coalition of advocacy group, uh, um, plant-based companies, large companies, and lab-grown uh, new uh, companies, meat companies. And you see there's a very volatile world moving forward um, on this area, and a lot of things are, are happening there. Uh, next slide, I'm going to skip the next example. Next slide. So on my final reflection, I just wanted to make a, a few final points. One is on uh, the bundling issue, which uh, uh, I think Chris very well explained. I don't need to repeat it, but I think the key point there is you need bundling both for economic, for technical reasons, but you also need it for political reasons. Okay. And the same thing is when you look at the trade-offs and the win-wins in this area, it is, I think, one of the very difficult things is, and that's where research can play an important role, is there's a lot of uncertainty in this, in this field, right? So if you, a lot of the changes that are taking place, the policy proposals that are out there, people are uncertain about the outcomes. When you start combining some of these policies, the uncertainty increases, okay? And that basically affects people's behavior, so that's the economic side, but it also affects people's political stances and political uh, preferences on this, and so that's on the political side, okay? And some of these, I think, and people, what two people do when they face uncertainty, they typically become conservative, okay, in their reaction and not uh, fearing change. Um, let me then just last two points. One is on the external shocks. We've faced a lot of external shocks, okay? An external shock can help to get you out of a policy equilibrium where you're stuck in a certain um, inertia, but it can also do the opposite. It can create more fear, more uncertainty, and therefore people are more likely to stick where they are rather than willing to change. And I think to some extent that's what we're facing today in this debate. And then the rational ignorance ar uh, argument refers to information in this thing. And we know that most people get their information, it used to be from mass media, now it's from social media. And we know there's an inherent bias in this uh, social media uh, framework, if you want. And so even if we have all the information out there, people may not just consume the information, which is, let's say, the, the facts, if you want, but they consume certain elements of information. And so you contribute to polarization, which is not helpful to get out of the uh, equilibrium out of the inertia where we are here. And that's also where Kuhn referred to, and to some extent Chris as well. 
I'm going to stop here because I think I used my minute. Thank you very much, Yo. I think all this uh, difficulties around food systems transformation, the clear winners, I think, are the lawyers, is, is one of my takeaways from, from, from your presentation. Um, so we're coming soon to the, to the Q&A portion of this event. And please continue to submit your questions, our online audience, uh, at ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on X. And all of you in the room, of course, will have an opportunity to ask uh, questions live. Um, we now have uh, a non-author of the book um, who is going to provide a little bit of an outside perspective and, and her um, feedback on the book and, and really nicely tee us up for the, for the Q&A session. And we're really pleased to um, have Lorraine Ronke with us. Uh, she is on secondment from the World Bank and is serving as the CGIR's Senior Advisor for Policy Impact based here with us at IFPRI and at the Systems Transformation Science Group. Over to you, Lorraine. Thanks very much. I think that introduction gives a good background, a good sort of idea of what perspective I'm coming from when I'm going to give some comments on these books. And that's very much from sort of a development practitioner in the policy sphere. And so thank you very much to the authors for inviting me. I mean, one of the things I appreciate from that perspective about the volume is that how clearly it characterizes the complexity of the current food system and the task of policy therein. You know, not just in a kind of hand-wavy kind of way, but rather very concretely, what are the main drivers, the rising trends, the new realities? And this is done really well. And what I want to explore in these five minutes um, through the book is what are we going to do about it, right? The very, very first thing offered to us by this volume in this sort of pragmatic vein is a framing. To break things down in those four categories that Danielle took us through at the beginning, political economy drivers <clears throat> that she outlined to help to start to organize our thinking um, within this complexity because we have to deal with this complexity. And I'll return to why that framing alone is quite important. What's important to note for now is that this is a framework born of the observed and described modern complexity of the ag and food system. Okay, so the framework is made for that complexity. It comes from that complexity. We have incentives for food system reform, mobilization for reform, the design of politically viable options, and then adaptation of food system policies as things change, which they always do. And the book's organized around those four sections. So all four sections offer, sorry, the book is organized in sections around those four policy driver groups. And all four sections offer a rich analysis and, and useful insights, and they take us in varying degrees to what we should do about it. Um, as policymakers or as their partners. So in the interest of time, let me just illustrate with one part. If we think about the section of the book that discusses the um, mobilization for reform, okay? Here we have several papers that don't just describe the changing modalities that we see in the context of this complex world, um, especially coalitions, which we've heard a lot about given the surge of actors at play now, but also what we might do with that knowledge in terms of more intentional management of those groups, of that complexity. So the chapter, for example, by Mokshal and Ritter working in Ghana is about understanding the various interests and, and not just that, but where coalition alignment is possible and therefore where traction could be gained on food system transformation policies. In action, that's super useful. 
Um, there are similar gems in the other three sections of the book as well, but I was also asked to speak in a teeny tiny amount of time about limitations or areas that the book did not have the scope um, to focus on. So I dutifully looked at what the authors themselves um, identify as the five areas of further research. And of course, I'm in agreement. I mean, it's things like um, given the multifaceted nature of food system policy, implementation and enforceability need a lot further, a lot more research and further development. Of course they do. Um, but there is one that gives me pause, maybe just to unpack it a little bit. So let me read it to you. It's, in other words, the volume has addressed certain issues discreetly, such as repurposing sub subsidies, bundling on-farm innovations, and reducing overconsumption of sugar and meat. But the policy options to simultaneously advance progress in all these areas and more remains unidentified. This impedes political economy analysis to some extent because without knowing what the optimal food system transformation policy package consists of, it's impossible to fully uncover the true winners and losers of the reforms. Well, yes, and sort of no. So, I mean, <laughs> just one observation is that, I mean, it's true, but I'd like to suggest that the crowning additionality of this book is the application of the framework approach that it suggests, right? So the quest should not be an exhaustive treatment of every issue simultaneously, although in theory that's what transformation of the food system implies. But I mean, that quest I fear could lead in practice, maybe in theory as well, to a kind of like death by general equilibrium you know, or a paralysis where it's just all too, too much. And, and we know that actually that's not how it works in, in real life, right? Like it's, it's not necessary to go there. That's what I'm thinking. You know, countries and stakeholders cannot look at all of the salient issues to food system transformation at the same time in practice. That's not how it works, is it? You know, as I'm sure you all, as all, you all know, but the value of the book is to map out what needs to be looked at. What questions do we need to ask in this current context of complexity in terms of incentives, mobilization, design, and adaptation. So the cases might have been single issue, you know, reducing sugar consumption, et cetera, but they're illustrating a framework. And the happy thing about frameworks is that um, you don't know a priori what number of issues are central, what combination. It's going to vary from country to country, but why is it different? We could just apply the framework to increasingly complex objectives. That's what's happening, is we're layering complexity. Um, but we're not necessarily needing to change the framework, um, which I found actually very useful thinking back on some of the policy issues um, that we've had to deal with at the bank in, in different regions. So, I, I mean, to conclude, yes, I see negative four, negative five. As the authors maintain, of course, there's more to learn. There's more to research. But I think that maybe the very the very most useful very next step would be to work with countries that have their specific and priority set of parameters central to transforming the food system and to apply these framing these framing considerations to those layered parameters and objectives it's more complicated we'll learn we'll document then we will integrate that learning and so it goes again and again so research and development thank you very much Thanks very much, Lorraine, and big thanks to all the speakers. I'm going to invite you to come up here and take a, take a seat. And our online um, presenters, please come on camera.
as we move into into the Q&A. And I invite those of you here in person to just uh, raise your hand or better yet stand up by the microphone uh, right behind you for a question. Um, and the first one that I posed earlier, I'm going to plant already with Ed. Uh, Ed, what was the impact of the tax in those three countries? Did it actually make a difference or not? And let's take a, another question here. Let's take a few. Please identify yourself. Thank you. You, do, you need to turn it on, yeah. evolution of public resources and the most recent framework and that is the principles for locally led climate adaptation. I'm just wondering where you've seen the possibilities for shifts because um, you know that entails formation mobilization and all, all those things are in this wonderful framework. I'm really eager to hear how we can build up um, strength around the, particularly the call to shift 25% of climate money to locally-led adaptation. How, how can we do that based on what you've learned in this research? Great. That's a great question. And I can maybe supplement that with one that's come um, to us online. And it's from Ramesh. Uh, he's asking whether the, the, the political economy of food system is very much local, not necessarily national or international. How can local political economy issues be addressed? Um, so I suggest maybe we go in the Ed, you can take the question on on the tax. And Danielle, do you want to answer the question on the um, the local? Uh, you know, how do we sort of uh, uh, how, how what does a political economy look like at the local level, and and address the question about uh, um, climate change funds being channeled to to localities. And then I'm going to plant a third question with you, Chris. Um, if you could go back in time to 25 years ago when Golden Rice was announced on the cover of uh, Time magazine. Uh, what would you do differently? This is a question uh, that has come online. Um, so let's go in the order, Ed, uh, Danielle, and Chris. Well, thank you, Charlotte. And this is a very important question. Um, uh, I think the most evidence that I've seen so far in Mexico is that it has uh, had a, a really good effect on, on reducing the uh, consumption of these SSB products. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, survey research done by um, several researchers showing that it has had, like, contributed to a decline. Uh, although in the other countries, uh, it's not something that I really looked at. I, I looked in the chapter on the, the prioritization of this policy, but I haven't followed up on what the recent evidence is on the efficacy of this tax in, in India and South Africa. But I am optimistic, especially in the case of India, because this has been included into their fiscal reform, which is a, a um, centralization of uh, of the um, of taxation process and sort of this this is a critical component of that um, you know the taxation on these industries uh, and so I'm very optimistic that it will lead to you know what they're trying to do with the additional revenue uh, it's also important to know that Mexico has been using they have plans to use the revenue to reinvest in health and and um, I think these other countries are doing that as well but in terms of the actual evidence I think Mexico has shown the most in terms of uh, impact so So I think I may actually ask Lorraine to talk about the climate adaptation uh, question, but I can talk about Ramesh's uh, question about uh, the political economy of the local 
um, you know, local issues, local food issues. Um, and I think there's at least two dimensions there. I mean, one, I, I didn't actually go into much depth here, but we do have, I talked about the challenge of the horizontal coordination across sectors. Um, we also have this vertical coordination challenge. And we have, you know, a lot of countries um, in the global south have devolved many more functions to local governments at the subnational level. Uh, a lot of countries have, uh, you know, the subnational level has control over a lot of agricultural functions, a lot of health functions. Um, and that, of course, further complicates our discussion about food systems because you have um, different tiers of government, some with concurrent functions in the food system space. But there's another dimension to that when you think about something like urban food systems, um, something I work on quite a bit. Um, and I think this, this same framework can be uh, applied in that context. If I think about, uh, if we're looking at urban informal food markets, um, you know, thinking about the range of interest groups, the private sector operators in the markets, um, the non-state actors, the cartel actors that may be working um, in the informal markets, how they come together in coalitions, um, and et cetera, through, through the rest of the framework. So. Um, certainly, I think it depends on the issue area that we're looking at in terms of to what degree the subnational level is involved. Um, but, but certainly, I think uh, our discussion on the political economy still has that, that same ap applicability in that context. Uh -huh. Okay, thanks. The, um, I, I think that the answer to the question about sort of decentralizing climate um, fine. That's not very different from the answer that you just gave in the sense that the framework, as I said just now, the framework works both at that sort of elevated level of complexity and, you know, at whatever level that these decisions are being taken and managed. But I think what's distinct about your question is, of course, that there's, there's always the danger of kind of a tragedy of the commons, right? So I think the book does note actually sort of rising or the spread of decentralization. So many countries, um, devolving both uh, accountability but also agency with regards to different and so everybody and then and then you lose the big picture so it is a fact that in some countries that decentralize very quickly and devolve those powers very quickly uh, especially in the area of climate or pest management uh, in terms of crisis pest management I mean locusts in South Asia that kind of thing that the, the cracks show at that moment. And so it seems that that decentralization has to, you have to think very actively also about the coordination at that greater good is not the same thing as saying that it shouldn't be devolved because that might happen. I think, I think we know more and more as we go on what the risks would be and, and, and what those safeguard mechanisms need to be. So I think that, I think that's what I would say on the climate part. Great, Chris, do you wanna jump in? Sure. Uh, on the question of what would I have done differently in 20 in the year 2000 to accelerate diffusion of golden rice? I think it comes down to really three different things. Um, the first is to recognize that in contrast to the varieties of rice developed during the Green Revolution, largely Erie and its various national ag research system collaborators, um, this was a uh, private effort, and it was bundled up with a lot of commercially held patents. And the fact that it was a transgenic variety that had patent protection played into the misinformation campaigns of the anti-GMO movement. One of the most fundamental things that the patent holders could have done is immediately put those patents in the public domain for the purpose of golden rice diffusion. You know, they weren't going to make big money off of enforcing those patents. And by continuing to hold up 
the, the advance of the technology trying to eke out a little bit of revenue flow, they just fed into the, the movement that was fostering misinformation. So the, the first thing, which was a really strategic error, was the, the holders of the patents that the, the scientists developing Golden Rice had used erred tremendously. And partly this was because they, they weren't brought into a coalition where they could benefit. The second part is the Ministry of Health wasn't brought in in any of the countries involved. But there are potentially significant savings in vitamin A supplementation, which is a pretty significant line item in many of the countries where, where golden rice potentially has a big impact. It would have been relatively straightforward to write impact bonds where, you know, for every reduction in vitamin A supplement use that is enabled by improved vitamin A absorption by children, we will pay bondholders a little bit of a bonus on this loan and thereby get the financing to accelerate the R&D, the tr field trials, to bring that technology from a publication in science and development in a Swiss lab to fields in Pakistan and the Philippines. And the third thing is, is working with the, the, the local seed companies who were largely left out of this until about a decade in. Um, so they're just, this was the conceit of us academics. It was, you know, trying to go it alone, thinking your science is so brilliant that of course people will use your science to change the world and not recognizing that lots of other people have, have other interests and there are ways to structure this so that everybody benefits. The, the patent holders got creamed by, by the concerns people had about corporate power over transgenics. They ultimately didn't benefit from this. Ministries of Health spent more money than they needed. Investors didn't make money, and the the, the local uh, the local NARS were left out of the game too long. So that's what I would have done differently. Great, very very clear. Um, any any more questions from the room? In the meantime, please stand up by the by the mic if you do have a question. In the meantime. Um, let me ask a question to, to Yo, who of course is a great scholar internationally, but has a real uh, um, deep knowledge on the EU. Um, so we, we've heard about these, these new farming parties in, in Europe, and what explains their rise? Do you think that this could be sort of a, um, a reaction to the Green Deal, some of the, some of the, the, the you know, uh, policy, guidelines coming from, from the EU. Give us your, your sense of what's, what's happening in, in Europe. And then another question that's coming online for, I think, Danielle. Um, you know, uh, IFPRI does a lot of work on gender. What, where are the gender dimensions of this book? What are the gender issues around political economy of, of food systems transformation? Um, yeah, my last slide, which I skipped, had a bit of that. But there's a, there's a great chapter in the book by Alan Matthews and his colleagues, which are explicitly uh, discussing the European case. I think the European case is very interesting because it's really, an, 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 I mean, from an, an analytical case, a perfect case, if you want, not from the real world and the thing which is happening there, but because it really, it was an attempt, the Green Deal, to really change their agricultural policy quite significantly by, on one hand, by broadening and by bringing in these new dimensions, and at the same time by really repurposing, I mean, the thing we've been working on um, here at IFPRI in the World Bank, et cetera, the subsidy system. And the reactions to it have been tremendously strong. And so I think the, 
uh, <clears throat> to some extent because it is, it's really, um, how should I say, it's undermining people's livelihood in a way. And so a lot of it is focused on, on the livestock sector, particularly the intensive, I mean, the Green Deal is much broader than that, okay, but, but some of the most strongest reaction have been in, in Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, in Holland, Belgium, Ireland, etc., where it's the, the, the because the, the impact of, of the emissions are so strong, and so the only way of dealing with this is quite radical um, uh, changes, and this is really threatening farmers, uh, basically continuation as a farmers and, and their children. The point is, uh, livestock there is a very labor, in, uh, sorry, very capital-intensive industry, and so the uh, the opportunities of leaving it and doing something else, you have a huge capital loss with it. It's not particularly obvious what you what your alternative opportunities are, and to some extent, there's certainly an, an element of values there. I mean, basically, your livelihood as a farmer in itself is threatened. So it's a combination of these various things. What is interesting also is that traditionally in Europe, uh, farmers' organizations have been affiliated with Christian democratic parties. And so what you see is they do no longer feel represented by these parties anymore. They, Like in Holland, they created a whole new party at some point. They were going to get 25% of the votes in, in, the, in the polls, uh, which is huge. It's unheard of. And so these things have been replicated. So it's a, it's a very fascinating thing. At this point, I think even at the highest European political level, the Green Deal is to some extent under threat, particularly on the implementation side. And I think it's a, for the world, it's terrible if they go back. So they, they have to move forward. But the, the, the pushback is very strong. Thank you. Um, yeah, so on the gender question, I mean, I think it comes through in, in at least three different ways. I mean, it comes through in thinking about trade-offs. Um, you know, the example I gave with sugar, uh, the, the sugar tax in, in South Africa, and, uh, you know, it was a lot of uh, black South African women who were lobbying about the loss of their jobs um, in the sugar sector uh, from the tax. Um, and so you can think about the kind of the, the inequalities in terms of the outcomes. Um, there's quite a bit of work on global value chains and how kind of adhering to standards um, in certain ways kind of can push out, you know, some of the most informal workers, um, particularly in the agriculture sector, who, who often tend to be to be women. So I think on the trade-offs, um, that's a key element that we look at. In terms of the framing, you know, mobilizing a, a gender frame um, can be very powerful. Uh, you know, one of the key lessons that we have is obviously you want to build the, the biggest win set of coalitions to push forward a particular policy, and that may involve appealing to people based on their different values, of course. So, um, you know, ways that you're able to, to mobilize a kind of gender uh, equality framing for particular issues is very key. I gave that example about the, the peasant feminist, uh, for, for instance. And then lastly, um, uh, in terms of we had trade-offs framing, and then on mobilization, you know, ways that you're uh, proactively engaging um, women into the, the discussions that are relevant to them. So some of the more kind of consensual approaches that we talked about in terms of mobilization. Um, if we think about some of the urban food policy councils that are featured in the book, you know, ways that you ensure informal food traders, Particularly, who are particularly women in the fresh food sector, um, you know, making sure that when the mayors are, are holding these urban food policy councils, making sure that you have sufficient uh, gender representation. So I think on all three of those fronts, the trade-offs, the framing, and the mobilization um, that filters throughout. We have no specific case study just on women, uh, but there's, there's certainly a theme that carries throughout the book. Great. Thanks. Uh, Kuhn, let's uh, have you answer one question as well. 
Um, I think it was in Yo's presentation where he talked about the really tremendous decrease in trade distorting support that's given to farmers uh, in, in developed countries. Um, and then I think it was Danielle who said, you know, we sort of have a multilateral crisis, right? A lot of our multilateral bodies, or especially the WTO, is not uh, perhaps as healthy as it could be. So we're in a situation where there are more and more expectations on food systems, right? It's, it's not just trade distorting support, what, what are the farmers getting, but it's all of the sustainability issues, it's the health issues. And of course, we do have codex. Um, is codex enough? What do we do? I know you, you're a big expert on standards, so maybe give us your thoughts on the role of standards. And do we, in this complicated international environment, do we actually have a good chance of reaching international consensus, say, on sustainability standards or uh, some of these uh, issues around taxes on unhealthy foods? Is that even conceivable? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Well, thank you for keeping the toughest question for me. Um, <laughs> I think it's uh, you have it's one minute. Just, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, it's challenging at multiple levels, and one of them being that the OECD itself is part of that multilateral system. So there's also, of course, uh, limitations to what I'm allowed to just say as with the OECD logo over there. Yeah. Uh, but I think if I'm just uh, talking from a personal perspective for a second, like if you think about the idea of trying to negotiate an international agreement on sustainability, sustainable agricultural trade or something like that, you have to ask yourself if we're not even able to get the dispute settlement mechanism in the WTO up and running again, and all that would take is just appointing judges to it. I'm not really optimistic that you can actually get a complete multilateral agreement sort of, well, in the next couple of decades, let's say. And so I know that people have come up with ideas like that to come up with something like a Codex Planetarius as a counterpart to Codex Alimentarius to try and set global standards on sustainability. But um, why would a country that, that has deforestation risks, et cetera, sign up to anything that is ambitious enough to actually matter for global sustainability? So I don't think that's necessarily the right approach. Um, you risk wasting a lot of time on negotiations and finally agreeing to disagree on everything. So I don't think that that's uh, necessarily the most effective approach. Um, what we see happening right now is, uh, specifically on sustainability, is that there's a, a massive revolution happening towards quantification of it. So in the past, when people spoke about sustainability, sustainability standards, the idea was that you would define what that means, usually with a checklist. You know, you cannot use this type of pesticide, you should do these types of practices, and if you do all that, we'll come and certify, and then you're either certified or you're not certified. So it's a very binary approach. Um, what we're seeing now is a big shift towards quantification, where you would go and calculate the carbon footprint, calculate the water footprint, et cetera, and try to quantify that. And it's a very different approach. Uh, first, it allows you to actually make comparisons between commodities. So suddenly we, we discover that beef is way worse than poultry, and poultry is way worse than lentils, et cetera. So that's a comparison that you cannot do in this old certification checklist system, because then you can only compare whether this banana is fair trade and this one isn't fair trade. So you can only do it within a, a product group. Um, the second difference is that it allows for a lot more innovation, a lot more flexibility for people to then try and reduce those, those impacts. And you also realize that there's actually an enormous heterogeneity even within countries. So it sort of softens the, the political economy and changes it in really interesting ways. Um, and what's interesting there is we wrote a paper on it called Fast and Furious because that is really things are moving very quickly. And so we, that came out over the summer. And I think by now it's already partly outdated. Things are moving very fast. Um, different countries are involved. 
large corporations are getting involved as well because they also need to know what their own carbon footprint is and they cannot really wait for governments to come up with some sort of international agreement on it. So there, there's a lot of movement in civil society, multinationals, uh, scientists to try and work this out. So it's it's um, a really interesting landscape and I would encourage everybody to, to look into that. I think the political economy of it is also fascinating because a lot of it is actually driven by companies because they're trying to preempt what they think might otherwise be introduced by governments and might not be very workable. So often they're trying to come up with something themselves. So there's very interesting nuances there in terms of political economy. Great. Thank you very much. Sorry, Greg. I'll keep it at that. Yeah, no, that's 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 great. Um, please join me in thanking uh, all of our outstanding speakers. <laughs> and uh, just just behind the doors, there are some refreshments waiting for you. And I would like to take this opportunity to announce our next uh, event. And I think we've got a slide for it. Uh, is it up already? Excellent. So here we go. This is very much related to today's topic. Uh, we Every year we host the Foreman Lecture on Nutrition. And on the 21st, uh, we're featuring Simon Barquera um, from uh, Mexico's Public Health Institute. And he will be speaking uh, very much uh, along the lines of, uh, of what uh, Ed Gomez uh, spoke about today. What happened in Mexico? Um, what kind of policies were proposed? And how did the industry react? How did different folks in the government react? So a really, really interesting, another yet another political economy look at, uh, at food systems transformation. So many thanks again also to our online audience. And um, for those of you here in person, we'll chat more over drinks. Um, and okay, I yeah. also, a huge thanks, huge thanks to Charlotte and the CPA team. Um, this book would have taken double, triple the amount of time to get out uh, without their help, with copy editing, with Michael keeping, keeping us on track, to be honest, uh, throughout this process. So, so incredibly grateful. You're Thank the team you. behind the team. And Thank you. And, and just to add uh, also to our wonderful event management team, many thanks for putting together uh, this, this event. And uh, hybrid events are, are now really a thing, and, and I think we are, we're trying to do the best we can. And I hope the experience has been great for you here in person, but also uh, nice for you joining us online. So many thanks.